I had a few nicknames growing up. I mean, it started in primary school, I think second grade. We were read a book called Flat Stanley, and it told the story of a boy who, lying in bed, had his pinball fall down on him. No real harm was done, other than he was squashed completely flat, kind of two-dimensional, not three-dimensional. It allowed for all sorts of grand adventures, from being able to slip through cracks in grates, you know, rescue keys that had been dropped through a grate, to being rolled up and mailed to exotic destinations. My surname then was Stania, so I became Flat Stania. That's obviously too long, so then Flat Stan, also too long, so eventually just Stan. And really, until I left Australia in my mid-20s, pretty much everyone knew me as Stan. Now, of course, there were variations. At one stage, I was called Calamity Stan because I was (laughs) growing fast as a teenager, a bit clumsy. Pretzel legs, also not very flattering. The ABC logo. I have ears that stick out. And if you Google Australia's ABC, which is the national broadcaster, you'll totally get the joke. But in the end, it came down to Stan. One of my best friends through high school and university was also a Michael. One of his early nicknames was Davros, a villain from Doctor Who, because he had a complicated braces set up for his teeth. But in the end, Michael Bachelard just became Batch. We've got some great shared adventures. We shared a house with a couple of other guys for three or four years in university, and that led to such things as winning a dress-up competition in the local 10-kilometer run. He was Robin Hood. I was a sugar plum fairy. Some intense games of backyard soccer, and the launch of our naked calendar, something that defined the year 1990 in a way that we can only now regret. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. So Michael Bachelard, this new 2021 version of him, is now an award-winning author and journalist. He's a deputy editor and investigations editor at The Age in Australia, one of the country's top three newspapers. And <laughs> like me, I guess, he's come a long way. But, you know, for him, that was always the plan. It's interesting because I think my story is somewhat atypical, even though it's the kind of story that we often see in fiction, which is knowing from a quite a young age that this is what I wanted to do. Batch would have been about 14 years old, so first or second year of high school when I first met him, when he really decided to become a writer. But pretty quickly, his pragmatic side took over. Almost instantly after I had that thought was, yeah, but writers are poor and uh, you can't rely on the income. And so I had a sort of broad sort of uh, pragmatic streak <laughs> switched in and I thought, well, gee, how can I be a writer and make money? And the word journalist, I remember it. I was out in the country somewhere at a barbecue with my parents. I don't know what was going on, but and I was standing on the tennis court, the empty tennis court, and this the word journalist popped into my head. And I thought, oh, that's what I'll do. And I went and announced it to my family. And thereafter, basically, I sort of worked towards that. Early in his career, he figured out the price you would need to pay to be committed to a career in journalism. It's a pretty stark realization, actually, but it's been a North Star for him. Relatively early in my career, some journalistic legend, you know, the editor of this and the kind of managing editor of that and broke this and that story, died. And about four people who were, you know, all 80 plus remembered him and mourned him for his reputation. I I worked out that you don't go down in the annals of history as a journalist. It's all about what you produce. 
and your duty, my duty, is to the audience and to story and the, the idea of exposing corrupt things or things that are going wrong or whatever. So that's the ethos which I approach it with. And this is an ethos that's won him multiple awards and really to claim mastery in this profession. But mastery doesn't mean you're necessarily appreciated or beloved. I think people in large part regard us journalists as on the scale of kind of global ethics, somewhere between real estate agents and used car salesmen. (laughs) In that zone anyway. Right. So we're not widely respected, I think. And that's partly because there are some terrible practitioners of my craft and there are people who are working bad faith and who don't stand for the kind of ethical and professional obligations that I think we should uphold. And that's very frustrating for those of us who turn ourselves inside out to check facts, to fairly apportion blame or credit for actions, who exhaustively try to kind of make sense of things in a world that's almost always got mushy edges where people have their own agendas and where there's a kind of no two witnesses give the same account of the same events. So yeah. we're trying to straighten all that out, give a credible and you know honest account, and then sort of weather the criticisms, whether they be in defamation courts or nasty letters or whatever. And those of us who take it seriously and take the duty of it seriously, and I guess the higher kind of aspects of it seriously, find it very frustrating that there are bad actors out there and that we do have a bad reputation. But I think that's the reality of it. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I would have said there were just two different types of journalists. (laughs) And one type of journalist has a reputation down there, but there's also a longing for the quality of journalism in these kind of media bubbles that we all live in and the echo chambers that we all live in in terms of helping to see beyond that as well. Yeah. Look, I think that's absolutely true. And one of the things that I mean, having said all that that I just said, yeah. there is a higher kind of duty, I think, in it. It sounds a bit pretentious to say, but I think there is a real public duty and public interest in finding those things out and telling them and telling them as honestly as you can and hoping that the truth does sort of filter out despite the echo chambers and the, the rabbit holes and and all that sort of dishonest opinion that we're exposed to. You're a little modest when you introduce yourself as a journalist because you are now a senior editor for one of the biggest papers in Australia. You're the deputy editor of The Age. When you see a younger generation of journalists coming in and reporting to you and being guided by you, how do you coach and mentor them? How do you help them think about what it means to be a journalist in 2021? Wow. Well, the younger generation scares me shitless because they're so talented (laughs) and smart. And the young generation have grown up with the tools that are just incredibly useful for finding stuff out and accounting for it in a way that I'm not native to. So they're teaching me at least as much as I'm teaching them. I guess for my idea of myself as a writer has never entirely left me. 
Yeah. This, I see journalism as having the kind of the research side, which is the obviously crucial, which I kind of almost surprised myself by enjoying as much as I did. And I became an investigative journalist and then a foreign correspondent. So I've gone very deep into the kind of researching side of things. But at the end, the bit that really often gives me the most joy is the putting it all together. And I suppose some young journalists don't necessarily appreciate that or don't have the skills to do that in the way. And it's not just aimless writerliness. It's actually right. conveying information in a way that people can truly understand the nuance of it. And the English language is a horrendously complicated and beautifully <laughs> it is. kind of formed thing. You can express incredibly fine nuances of detail and of yeah. meaning and trying to coach people in expressing it because you can have all the knowledge and all the ideas and all the facts in the world, but if you can't convey it, then you're missing a really crucial part of what journalism does. If people don't read the next sentence, then you failed. Then That's right. Yeah. Some people, oh, don't dumb it down. Don't, no, no, I'm making it readable. I'm making it legible for people right. and compelling. Yeah. Tell me about the book you've chosen for us, Batch. Well, Stan, this is one of my early kind of literary sort of wow moments reading this book. <laughs> yeah. So I came to it because I was browsing out in a secondhand bookshop outside my local shopping center when I was, I don't know, 16 or 17 or something and had some pocket money in my pocket and starting to, you know. Uh, secondhand bookstores, I remember those, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> starting to form my own opinions. And I picked up this book and it wasn't this book actually. It was a book of short stories by the same author. His name is Peter Carey, and he's now won two Booker Prizes, but back then he was just a young Australian author. And I picked up this book of short stories, and I flicked through it. It looked intriguing, and I bought it, you know, $4 or something, and read it. It blew my tiny provincial mind. <laughs> it was sexy and violent, and the it was bristling with ideas, and yeah. it was sort of surrealist in some ways. It was the first piece of magic realist fiction I'd ever encountered. Turns yeah. out there was two books of short stories and a novel. So I devoured the other book of short stories and then I went and bought the novel. And the novel in some ways is like a really long sort of magic realist short story. Yeah, yeah. And I love it. I reread it recently when I was trying to get even further back to my writerly roots and write a novel of my own just to kind of try and feel the rhythm and yeah. what had originally intrigued me about this kind of writing. And uh, I reread it and loved it and again. what had shocked you about it? I mean, you and I did English together in high school and in university as well. What was such a jolt to you in terms of Carey's approach to writing? Because he's a legend in Australian writing now. He is, yeah. Well, I guess we read a lot of classics. We read a lot of Shakespeare at school. Yeah. and we kind of probably read the canon as it was then, the sort of modernist canon, Jane Austen, and they're all absolutely terrific pieces of literature. But this was a piece of literature, and it was clearly literary. It wasn't a throwaway novel or an airport fiction. It was clearly a piece of literature that was about modern Australia, describing modern concerns, and it spoke to me. But more than that, it intrigued me, and I read it, and... I knew there was some deeper meaning there. I couldn't work out what it was. And it 
it niggled me and annoyed me. And so much of his stuff at that point did. It kind of, yeah. there's something going on here. What is it? And I found it compelling. Yeah. But also just the writing, the so lyrical, the combination of detail and lyricism is still sensational today, I think. And it's still some of the concepts in it and what have you are truly shocking and kind of really sort of jolt you out of yourself. Beautiful. I mean, you set this up so well. Why don't you take us to the two pages that you're going to read for us? Well, I'm actually going to read the first two pages of okay. the book because they set it up beautifully. And, yeah, yeah, indeed. All right. So part one, knocking at the hell gate. Harry Joy was to die three times, but it was his first death which was to have the greatest effect on him. And it is this first death which we shall now witness. There is Harry Joy lying in the middle of that green suburban lawn beneath that tattered banana tree, partly obscured by the frangipani, which even now drops a single sweet flower beside his slightly gray face. As usual, Harry is wearing a grubby white suit. And as he lies there quite dead, His blue braces are visible to all the world, and anyone can see that he has sewn on one of those buttons himself, rather than ask his wife. He has a thin face, and at the moment it looks peaceful enough. It is only the acute angles, struck by his long, gangling limbs, which announce the suddenness of his departure. His cheeks are slightly sunken, and his large moustache, a moustache far too big for that thin face, covers his mouth and leaves its expression as enigmatic as ever. His straight grey hair, the colour of an empty ashtray, hangs over one eye. And although no one seems to have noticed it, a cigarette still burns between two yellowed fingers, like some practical joke known to raise the dead. Yet when the two fingers are burnt, he does not move. His little pot belly remains quite still. He does not twitch even his little finger and the people huddled around his wife on the veranda 20 yards away have no justification for the optimistic opinions they shower on her so eagerly. Harry Joy saw all of this in a calm, curious, very detached way. From a certain height above the lawn, he saw the cigarette burning in his hand, but at the same time, he had not immediately recognised the hand as his. He only really knew himself by the button on his trousers. The lawn was very, very green, composed of broad-leafed tropical grasses, each blade thrillingly clear, and he wondered why everyone else had forsaken it for the shade of the veranda. Weeping came to him, but distantly, like shortwave signals without special significance. He felt perfectly calm, and as he rose higher and higher, he caught a fleeting glimpse of the doctor entering the front gate. But it was not a scene that could hold his interest in competition with the sight of the blue jewelled bay eating into what once had been a coastal swamp, the long meandering brown river, the quiet streets and long boulevards planted with mangoes, palms, flame trees, jacarandas, and bordered by antiquated villas in their own grounds, nobly proportioned mansions erected by ship owners, sea captains, and vice governors, and the decaying stuccoed houses of shopkeepers. Around the base of the granite monolith which dominated the town, the houses became meaner, the vegetation sparser, 
and the dust rose from gravel roads and whirled in small eddies in the Sunday evening air. Ecstasy touched him. He found he could slide between the spaces in the air itself. He was stroked by something akin to trees, cool, green, leafy. His nostrils were assailed with the smell of things growing and dying, a sweet, fecund spell, like the valleys of rainforests. It occurred to him that he had died and should therefore be frightened. It was only later that he felt any wish to return to his body, when he discovered that there were many different worlds, layer upon layer, as thin as phyllo pastry, and that if he might taste bliss, he would not be immune to terror. He touched walls like membranes, which shivered with pain, and a sound as insistent as a pneumatic drill promised meaningless tortures as terrible as the Christian stories of his youth. He recognised the worlds of pleasure and worlds of pain, bliss and punishment, heaven and hell. He did not wish to die. For a moment panic assailed him, and he crashed around like a bird surrounded by panes of glass. Yet he had more reserves than he might have suspected, and in a calm, clear space he found his way back, willed his way to a path beside a house where men carried a stretcher towards an ambulance. He watched with detachment while the doctor thumped the man on the chest. The man was thin, with a grubby white suit. He watched as they removed the suit coat and connected wires to the thin white chest. My God, he thought, that can't be me. The electric shock lifted his body nine to ten inches off the table, and at that moment his heart started, and he lost all consciousness. He had been dead for nine minutes. Oh, what a good setup. It's a great start, isn't it? It thrills up my spine <laughs> as I kind of that moment. What was it about that batch that grabs you and pulls you in, do you think? Oh, well, I mean, the writing, <laughs> the heaven, hell, the bliss, the ecstasy, the yeah. pain, the torment, the layers of reality, I suppose. Yeah. I'm immediately intrigued by the world. And the world, clearly, it's, it's Queensland. He's talking about Brisbane, so he paints the world beautifully and really, and in the midst of all that kind of floating and sort of existential stuff, there's physical descriptions of the houses and the people who used to occupy them and the the shape of the leaves of the trees. So the, the detail in it, and then there's the kind of magic in it. Carey said once in an interview that if you're going to introduce a ghost into a room, just make sure you make the room as credible as you possibly can so that when the ghost arrives, you believe the ghost. And that's what he's doing. And it, I find it compelling. But really, I guess it's a little bit like the opening line of 100 Years of Solitude. Right. The first sentence, Harry Joy was to die three times. It's that future kind of perfect tense where you think yeah, yeah. we're throwing forward, but we're also kind of pulling back. I love that ambiguity. You know that, I mean, I'm just trying to remember the first line of Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude, and it's like when Colonel Aurelio Banderas was in front of the firing squad, he thought back to something, something, something. I can't quite remember how it goes, but That's something right. like that. So you're sort of seeing yeah. the future, yeah. but you're very much rooted in the present. Yeah. You know you'll get there, and that's sort of setting up what happens through the book. The final pages of the book is when Harry Joy dies for his final time. His final time. 
but also you realize that all of the themes of the book are set up really in that first two pages that the heaven yeah. and hell so you know just briefly what happens is he comes back to life but he doesn't quite believe it anymore and his old life <laughs> he's not quite sure it's real and we're not quite sure as the reader whether it's real or not yeah and we're seeing things he's seeing things for the first time so harry joy is yeah in a very australian vernacular he's a good bloke he's just yeah. sailing through life and he's missing all this stuff because it's inconvenient to see the nasty things that are happening around him, but suddenly he can't ignore that stuff anymore. And so the book is his kind of trying to work out, is he actually, he thinks sincerely for a long time that he's in hell, but we can really see ultimately that (laughs) this is just modern life. It's hell. And so it's a really powerful sort of trope, I think. All set up by that first death yeah yeah there's opening pages but how do you come to the world with fresh eyes you use the phrase intrigued by the world you know that's part of the job of a journalist but also part of the job perhaps of being a a human fully present in the world Mm. curious to know how you think about that it's a great question stan perhaps i'll answer it sort of as a journalist initially I feel like the worst journalists are the ones who've become cynics Mm. because at that point you stop recognising the things that make the world tick. I mean, you have to be worldly as a journalist. You can't expect, you can't be naive and you can't be the terrible things that go on or the poor motives that people have. But I I truly believe that if you ascribe poor motives to everyone or... Mm believe that everything in the world is corrupt or whatever, that you are equally ineffective as a journalist because you're unable to discern right. what's what. And yeah. you lose the passion, I suppose, for believing that justice can be done or that transparency can work. I've heard journalists say, and I think it's true of me as well, that you're sort of fueled by righteous anger. And if you're not angry, you're not looking. And if you're not righteous, you're not hoping that you can kind of somehow do something about it. Yeah. To me, that sense of, it's not innocence. Innocence is the wrong word. The sense of getting up every day and looking at the world and trying to approach it with discernment. I'm not sure that I'm making much sense, but I think that's kind of what keeps me fresh. How do you keep an open heart? You know, I've got a friend who's a criminal lawyer and very passionate about his role as supporting the defending people, so the criminals, basically. You know, he's a champion for them feeling being underrepresented, but his heart has hardened over the last 10 years as he's done that work. He has a much darker view of life than he did when he began that profession. And, you know, in the times I spend hanging out with you, I don't feel that shadow. I'm just wondering how you stay open to the world or whether that's just, you know, lack of wiring. I think it's partly wiring. I mean, I have and have always been quite hopeful and glass half full. Yeah. 
I tend to see the best in people, which is oddly for a, an investigative journalist. <laughs> Very often you're trying to find the details that will confirm the fact that actually this person is somebody you should see the worst in. Yeah. Look, as a foreign correspondent, I was based for three years in Indonesia and I was based there while Australia was going through the political conniptions about immigration that many other Western countries have been through since. I mean, you know, Europe and what happens on the southern border of the US. And very often a large wave of immigration leads to a conservative political backlash because people don't like irregular migration. Voters don't like it. And conservative governments and politicians can exploit that. And this was precisely the thing that was happening in Australia. And in 2013, among some of these policy conniptions, a lot of boats, something like 30,000 people arrived by boat from Indonesia into Australia in a six-month period or thereabouts. And I was in Indonesia. And in Australia, the government was stopping all information coming out. So really, I was the only conduit to my audience about who these people were. Mm. And a lot of people died. The boat sank and they died. And I was dealing every day with family members, with hopeful people who still wanted to get on a boat but knowing how dangerous it was, or people who'd lost friends or had decided not to go on a boat and were going to try and get their... Mm through regular means, and also with people smugglers, the people who were kind of organising these trips, and in some cases people were killing people. And I guess, to me, it could have been quite dark. There was a lot of really, really, really depressing stories I told there. But I felt like there was this a sense of mission, really, about informing Australians with wide-eyed honesty, I mean, there were a lot of people on both sides who weren't angels, what was really going on and how our policies affected people and how our attitudes affected people. And I mean, I had views, but my views probably changed a bit with the facts on the ground, but mostly it was just me saying this happened because of partly because of us or because of a combination between what's going on in Afghanistan and what's going on here and what's going on in Indonesia and the policy that we're enforcing. And we need to know this. And so, again, it sounds pretentious, but it's that sense of mission, of the duty and honour, really, of being the guy who's there in Indonesia, who's got the permission and the funding to live my life finding things out to then inform people and it's an honour. And I've heard it said of people who are in dangerous suffering from post-traumatic stress and things like that, that the ones who are kind of most proof to that, I suppose, are the ones who feel that what they're doing is in fact worthwhile. And honourable in some ways. And honourable. And it's the ones who fall short of that or for or whose mission seems to be futile or worse, who are most susceptible to that, to falling into kind of a traumatised state. And journalists are as at danger of that Mm. as many other professions. But I've kind of always felt like, well, 
this is a duty and an honor and to be able to be that guy. And so I guess that I feel it's kind of like a shield (laughs) against cynicism and against trauma. What What a gift to have had a sense of that for 40 years now. (laughs) <laughs> from being 14 to kind of going, there's a nobility to the profession that you can continue to draw upon. Yeah. Well, look, it is. I feel very, very, very lucky that I found yeah. something and happened to be good at something that gave me that sense of mission and purpose. I remember actually relatively early on in my career, um, you get tied up in the technical side of it and the career advancement and all that other stuff. Yeah, and just having a moment of revelation in the car park, <laughs> hang on, and feeling sort of bogged down by it all, and then just having a moment of it, hang on. I used to think it wasn't about all that; it was about this. And I said, yeah. I, I kind of told myself, like, remember that, get back rely to the on source. that, get yeah. back to what made you want to do this. Yeah, and it's kind of stayed with me. Your roles evolved from being a journalist whose job is to find the stories and write the stories to now being an editor, which I think, I don't really know, but I think it means basically putting the paper together. So you're like, (laughs) how do all the bits fit together? How do we answer the needs of our diverse readers? How do you figure that out on a daily basis around, it feels like you're given a 25,000 piece jigsaw puzzle every day to put together. (laughs) It is a bit like that. It's been described as a daily miracle, and and it really is essentially publishing a novel in 24 hours every day, seven days a week. And it's become more complicated with, you know, the 24-7 news cycle. Obviously, the websites are at least as important as the thing we throw on people's lawns in the morning. Look, it's a daily challenge, but it's also – there's a big team. Yeah. And a, a highly talented team. And it's a because you do it every single day, it's a pretty well oiled machine. So, and, you know, there's got to be. What principles do you use to make decisions? I mean, how do you decide this, not that? Well, it's been disparagingly described as the tummy compass <laughs> at times. <laughs> Just. How's it feel? Does that feel good? Does that feel right? Yeah, yeah let's yeah. do that. All right. <laughs> Look, it's called news sense, news sense. Yeah. And it's really the kind of collective agreement. Uh, that's a good story. Yeah. It's yeah. some sort of combination of new, lively, important, and yeah. interesting. And the news sense for different media organizations obviously differs. Our celebrity radar is a lot lower than our politics radar right which doesn't mean we never have celebrity on the front page but yeah that our judgments are made according to our perceptions of our audience yeah 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 editing a paper is part of it but also leading and pastoral care of a couple of hundred staff yeah all of that's that's part of it as well and how as a organization but particularly you as one of the senior leaders of that organization do you know that you're staying the course of the overall mission of the paper. Because, you know, my guess is that you can get so engaged in the day-to-day stuff and the challenges, as as you say, publishing a novel every day, that 
it can be easy just to kind of drift off line from a bigger picture that the paper has. But maybe I'm assuming there is a bigger a bigger mission or a bigger goal that kind of the paper uses to navigate by. Is that right? There is. And there's a couple of ways to answer that, I suppose. One is yeah. we're a commercial organisation. We're funded by whatever we can get out of either readers or advertisers. Yeah. And so we have to be selling. Yeah. But within that, there's really a, a massive sea change in the way that media organisations had to interact with the world. In the old days, you could put any old crap out, really. I mean, this is yeah. possibly an exaggeration, Stan, but <laughs> bear with me. Because you own the printing press. And so anybody right. who wanted to advertise to a mass audience, they had to come to you. And we deluded us. You can have us. any colour car you want as long as it's black. You can have any news you want as long as it's mine. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. You know, and so, of course, we aim for a niche. So the New York Times was aiming for a different niche than the New York Post. And the Age yeah. in Melbourne was aiming for a different niche than the Herald Sun, which is the tabloid. Ultimately, all the work that we poured into our Saturday journalism, you'd go out you'd watch people and they'd turn up in their droves to buy the paper and they'd throw out all that stuff because they <laughs> wanted to buy a car. That's the section yeah. they were interested in. And people had to go there because there was no choice. Well, all of that now is stripped away from us. You buy a car, yeah. you go to the website. Car, buyacar.com. Buyacar.com. Yeah. You want a house, you go to buyahouse.com. You don't come to us anymore. So we've gone through various iterations of how to respond to that. And one of them, which has been to go down market and on our websites to just try and attract as many people as we can so that we can, those little ads that appear on the website, we get traffic through them. But Google owns those and we get a tiny proportion of the revenue. Yeah. We were ruining our brands and chasing our tails. And the New York Times probably led this, but a lot of the rest of the kind of quality media is trying to pick up. And now we've got this kind of, we're trying to attract subscribers and subscribers, our yeah. subscribers want quality, high quality. Yeah. So it becomes a virtuous cycle where the better journalism you can produce, the more likely you are yeah. to attract people to pay for it. So you asked about our mission, which is a very long way of yeah. telling you, but that commercial mission actually, and the kind of ethical or the sort of highbrow mm. mission that I'm talking about have kind of come back into sync again in the past couple of years in a way that I think is very gratifying for those of us right. who care about what we do and what yeah, we produce. Thing, yeah. yeah, and of course there's a million different metrics and figures and ways to carve the information we get through our websites to be able to tell us that. Yeah. So the thing at the moment is just tell people what they need to know in the most compelling and honest and transparent way that we can. So it's kind of, in some ways, towards the end of my career, it's all come together a bit. <laughs> Perfect. That's <Nice> culminating moment. <laughs> That's right. Speaking of culminating moments, we're almost at the end of the conversation here. But a final question, what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said in this conversation between you and me, Beck? What your latest kind of, you know, what you're saying about doing something that feels hard, What's the phrase? Hard, important and... Thr thrilling, important and daunting. Thrilling, important and daunting. And that resonates so... It's like a bell for me. <laughs> Thanks. Just has the ring of truth. To me, that kind yeah. of... This is not a paid ad, by the way, listeners. <laughs> this is a, an honest opinion. <laughs> I feel like 
that's how I've kind of viewed mm. my career. And at times when I've flagged, it's encouraged me that what I'm doing is thrilling, daunting and important yeah. and crucial. And it's taken me through some quite difficult moments. You know, I've seen some pretty awful things, yeah. but it's always felt crucial. And to me, that's kind of the thing that drives me along. I admire many things about Batch, and I really just appreciate his friendship over the years. But a significant part of what I think makes him a great guy is that he's not cynical and that he looks at the world still with fresh eyes and an open heart. I don't think that means he's soft or naive. When you've seen what I think he's seen through the work that he's done, I just don't think you can be. But in fact, that's what makes this so impressive in my mind. When you've seen so much of the underbelly of what's there when the thin veneer of civilization is scraped away, it must be very easy to get hard, a little bitter, a little hard-hearted. But with Batch, I feel there's just this deep commitment to the beauty of life and doing the work to give more to the world. And, you know, I wish that spirit for him to continue, but also for me and perhaps for you as well. If you enjoyed my conversation with Batch, a couple of interviews you might want to check out. Sandra Sutcher, she's a professor at Harvard, and that interview is called How to Be a Moral Leader. And she reads from a wonderful book, a story of the atom bomb. And that was really quite a profound conversation around what it actually means to face some of the hardest decisions around leadership. And the second interview I would suggest is Swati Mailavarapu. And that interview is called How to Be World Positive. She's a Rhodes Scholar, but kind of doing very interesting things with venture capital in Silicon Valley, really funding world-changing organizations. And that was also a deep and profound conversation. Thanks for listening to the podcast, of course. Thank you for giving it a rating. Thank you for passing the word on. <laughs> Maybe there's somebody in your life who has a great nickname and you're like, you should just hear the opening lines of this podcast because it'll make you laugh. If you want more, there's the Duke Humphreys, our free membership site. You can find that at mbs.works on the podcast tab. And in any case, thank you. You're awesome and you're doing great. <laughs>